Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Uh, could you please introduce yourself? Yes, thank you for the invitation. My name is George Whitesides and I'm a professor of chemistry at Harvard University. So thanks so much for being with us on podcast. It's such a great honor to have you, Professor George Whitesides. So I would like to ask you, uh, what is the first robot you build and what was the feeling you had at the time? The first robot that we built was what we call a starfish gripper, which was a soft robot that has five fingers on it or something like that and simply clamps around the thing of interest. And it was amazing to see how easily it went and how smoothly it worked. Mm -hmm. And what the feeling you had because you lead this kind of research at this time? What sort you had? There wasn't any research at this time. It was just interesting to see how well that it went. Actually, I'm not being quite true. Rockwood and Daniela Roos mm. had independent programs, but the one that we had was, we weren't doing it in a competitive fashion. We were just trying to see if it worked, and it worked. So we were very happy. Mm -hmm. Great. So I would like to go back when you were a child. Have you ever heard about robotics? And because there is a Japanese robotist said, since I was a child, I have never liked looking at Wix figures, and it sounds creepy to him. So I would like to ask you, when you were a child, what what you what your thought uh, when you hear about robotics? Because there are movie in 1928 about robotics. So. Yeah. Well, I didn't really think about robotics very much, except for the fact that I was an avid reader of science fiction when I was young, mm -hmm. and robots were an integral part of anything to do with science fiction, so I was happy always to see robots. Yeah. But you weren't afraid or concerned about the robots to be... No. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. So I would like to ask you, what is the most simple and beautiful, profound equation that inspires you? Well, in terms of simplicity and in terms of equations, I would say Maxwell's equations, or maybe the Schrodinger equation. Mm -hmm. typical equations of quantum mechanics. Yeah. So, since you had this large experience in soft robotics, how you would define soft robotics from your perspective? And what is are the most important questions uh, that sh should be considered? Well, there are two different questions. The first question is, how do I consider soft robotics? And that's a question of use. In soft robotics, answer the question, or in principle, answer the question of how human beings will interact with machines. Mm -hmm. And that distinction is going to require the usual large amount of development work in order to make the technology work. But I think the basic answer is correct, that soft robots, soft things, are the step between soft people and mm -hmm. hard machines. And that's how I think about that question. Mm -hmm. And what was your second question? It was, I'm sorry, I've forgotten already. What are the most important questions that should be considered? How far can you go in this direction? 
And, yeah. You know, we have things that do useful functions and are soft, but how soft is soft enough and what are the functions and what should we use as a demonstration? Should it be a prosthetic device? Should it be a gripper? Should it be something that's functional? Should it be decorative? What, how do we think about this problem? And we tend to think about it in terms of just looking for new kinds of function. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what the, what the users decide is the important thing to do with them is what they will turn out to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do you agree that soft robotics must be fully soft? No, mm. because there will be many occasions in which you want carriers or you want hard components or you want special durability which will only come with hard components. So mm. hybrids that are soft and hard at the same time will be very important, I think. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think the most inspiring living creature uh, for software robotics research? And it's still really hard to replicate it. A squid or mm. an octopus. They can do so many things that we can't do and they're clearly very intelligent animals and so they're smart they're multifunctional they can do things we can't do it would be most interesting to try to understand how they work what they do and how they do it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but do you think we really understand um, how this creature really work or still we have a lot of time to understand their complexity I think we understand how many creatures work in principle, but how the the control systems, if you want to put it that way, yeah. how they work is very much open to question. And what is how does an octopus think and what does it think about? And since it seems as if an octopus has many controllers for its many arms and each controller is thinking independently in some way yeah how is this all coordinated into a common 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 constructive motion that is constructive for the octopus and i at least don't know the answer to this people who are specialists in octopus octopods yeah much better idea than i have Mm -hmm. yeah but the whole area of trying to imitate the motions of natural creatures Mm -hmm. from just octopus there's so many things there that we think we understand, mm. but yet if you can't if you can't replicate that activity or that motion, you may not really understand it. You may think you understand it, but you may not really understand it. And learning how things actually work and learning what the essential elements so that one can replicate the essential elements but not think about the others. I mean, we're not going to go to the effort of putting together things that look like muscles that Mm. seems probably unnecessary so if you ignore the details of how the organism works but look at the broad questions of how what functions it seems to provide and what you know what kinds of controls are required and what kinds of actuation is required those are really interesting questions which i think we can answer So, through this experience, what is the most mind-blowing and scary soft robots, or robot in general, have you ever seen? I haven't looked at soft robots in that in mm. that way. What impresses me about soft systems is what we call in the group replacing the the controller with the material, mm. which means 
can you simplify the thing that you're making by letting the nonlinearities in the material mm. take place of nonlinearities that you introduce with control systems? And all the evidence is yes, you can. It isn't exactly what we do because we're not control people, but it is a direction to go in this area. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And I would like to ask you about that replacing the control with a smart material. Do you think really we can really in reality now we understand the complexity of the smart material, for instance, ionic conductive polymer or any type of material like that? Since some people apply controllers that are destroying the natural dynamics or they don't understand how the material really behaves or why it behaves in certain behavior. Do you think we have a shortage in understanding the material itself? I think the answer to your very intelligent question is we understand in part. That is, we are able to point out those features of soft materials that can't be replicated. We mm. can't ourselves often replicate them. So, you know, yes and no. But yeah. if you look at a bird or you look at an octopus and you ask, this is something which makes itself from a fertilized egg, can we do that? The answer is obviously not, we can't. Can we make some of those features um, function as we think they should function or do function using artificial systems, non-biological systems? The answer is yes, we can. Mm. So we're part way there, but not all the way there by any manner of means. And we may never get there and may not think it worth the effort to get there. Yeah. So um, we are really curious about your works of robotics because you're leading many things in soft robotics, started from the company Soft Robotics Inc. And you have many leaders in soft robotics like Robert Shepard and, and also Professor Adam Stokes. So there are many. and. And you were inspiring for them. So I would like to ask you how you, your work in software robotics uh, started, how you think about the problems and what you really focus on and in software robotics now. Well, there are two separate questions. One is you look at people like Rob Shepard and, mm. and Stokes and others and ask how they got to what they were doing. And the answer to that is that they developed an interest in, in the area as they worked on it. Mm -hmm. So our contribution in this was more to provide an environment in which they can learn what they wanted to learn anyway and suggest an area where their particular interests could prosper. There was to do anything very, you know, very specific about that. But then the question of what they've done has been obviously something which has been very much up to them. And yes, they are leaders but they get to be leaders by doing what they thought was the interesting thing to do. Mm. And, you know, more power to them for that approach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, that's very also important point about, uh, I think about the passion and uh, insistence to do something you really believe in. And that's why I would like to ask you sometimes how you figure out this is something could be worthwhile to go in soft robotics, like a new idea. Because apparently some researchers just afraid to go to a dark area where no researchers have been investigated before. And, and that's, I think, I don't know if you agree with this point or not, but sometimes it is just people afraid to go to a new places to explore something that in soft robotics, which is completely new. 
You know, that's a philosophical question. It's a really, really interesting one. Mm. If you if you go where others have shown that something can be done, it goes more rapidly in principle, but you are imitating what somebody else has done. And what I tell the students is that if you're the first, everybody who goes in that general direction thereafter works for you. On the other hand, if you follow somebody else, you work for them. Mm. And it's a very important distinction. So what we try to do in the group is to do first experiments that demonstrate something can be done. And then from there, one proceeds and ideally other people find it interesting and useful and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But philosophically, the best science is done when it opens new doors rather than when it fully details the contents of the room. And our, our business is trying to open doors for the scientific and technological communities to do something new and interesting to work on. And obviously the people who made the first robots made the really biggest contributions. But then, you know, when you come to this distinction between hard and soft, the reasons for doing it yeah. are quite different than the reasons for doing the very first ones. And I'm quite happy with the way soft robotics is developing. Yeah. So from your perspective, what's really inspires you in soft robotics or something you would like really to still working on, like new ideas or something you wish to do and continue in soft robotics, something completely new? I think there's several ideas that are interesting. It's actually quite a wide variety. One is one that you've already alluded to, and that is how does one replace controllers that are active with feedback loops and things like that mm -hmm. with properties of materials? And yeah. that fits into this idea that I think is very descriptive and very appropriate, which is how do you replace controllers with materials? Yeah. So that notion of thinking about materials not in terms of conductivity or things of this sort, all of which are mm. very, very interesting subjects to consider, yeah. but in terms of how do they do what you want them to do automatically without having some external control that involves batteries and switches and ventilators yeah. and things like that. That's an interesting question. Another interesting question is how do you make them inexpensive so mm. that you can start doing things that you couldn't do just because they don't, um, you don't have enough of different kinds of structures. You, what we want to do is what the electronics community has done so very, very successfully, which is to find ways of using a relatively small number of simple components to solve a very large number of problems. But then there are certain kinds of problems that you can't do any other way. So for example, if you want systems that have the characteristic mm. that they are very probably going to interact with human systems, with human beings, or with animals, and do so safely and reliably. Mm -hmm. You want things that are soft because, you know, we as organisms are soft. So one thing about a you know a hard robot, a automobile assembly robot, is that when it's up and running, mm. it's breathtaking in terms of the speed and the efficiency with which you can do things. But also, if you happen to be standing in the way is breathtaking with the speed and efficiency with which, without thinking about it, it can cut you in half. Mm -hmm. And so you want systems that have the characteristic that you guarantee that they can do what you want them to do. They can pick up food or they can pick up babies or they can pick up old people or they can do whatever is appropriate and do it in a way that you're 
pretty confident is going to be safe for everyone that's involved. Mm. And so this is a new kind of problem and a very important problem to think about all the way from child care and elder care to the medical system. How do you think about these problems involving soft systems? Mm -hmm. And it, it will keep the field animated for quite a long time, I think. Yeah, actually, you highlighted many interesting points. And as we are the younger generation, we're working in this kind of few highlighted that we want to replace everything with like smart material. And there's like, I don't know how you see the current research done soft robotics really tackling this problem from your reading the, the research you, you see around us in soft robotics. Do you think there is a, a really effort to understand how this can be done? Because since, well, uh, yeah. There is an effort to understand how it can be done because if you think about autonomous systems and you think about systems that are controlled in some way, mm. when I try to pick up a pen or something like it, my brain tells a series of muscles in my arm, forearm and hand to contract and that provides a force which enables me to grip the pen but do it in a productive way. How do you do that with a hard machine? It's just difficult to do. If you do it with a soft machine, it's much less difficult to do. And if you're going to pick up something, unlike a pen, which is intrinsically pretty hard, but you're going to pick up something soft like a cupcake or a piece of fruit, mm -hmm. that you want a picker-upper, a grabber, which has the characteristic that is intrinsically soft. And what soft robotics brings to the story is the ability to pick up things that are unusual shapes, that are easily damaged mechanically, that have characteristics that maybe they change their shape or mm. you to do something unusual. So it, it enables that kind of activity in yeah. a fairly effortless way. And so I, th I think there'll be good opportunities for both hard robots and soft robots. It's just they're not the same. Yeah, yeah. But there's here a question about um, like controlling because some control techniques is really applied to traditional robotics where it doesn't consider um, the, the complex in, in smart material or soft robotics. This one issue, um, I don't know how what you think about it, firstly. Yeah. Well, control is a really, really interesting area. Mm -hmm. and one of the things which we have um, tried to take advantage of and which is turning out to be a very profitable area of science is nonlinearities in soft materials. Yeah. So that if you think about an automobile running into a barrier, the beams buckle and all kinds yeah. of things happen. You, you construct the frame of the automobile to resist or to absorb energy in bending and twisting the collision, the crash. If you're working with soft materials, you do something different. You try to arrange things in such a fashion that you take advantage of those nonlinearities, which cause beams to buckle irreversibly in an automobile crash. You take advantage of them to build systems that have the characteristic that they do what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. And that's going to mean doing things that hard materials just can't do. And so much of our research now uses nonlinearities is based on the fact that is it is based on the fact that when you take soft materials ranging all the way from sheets of plastic to shapes, balloons, and you you change whatever it is that's activating them, 
you get kinds of motions that you just don't get from hard materials. Mm. They're not necessarily better or worse, they're just different. Yeah. And so we try to take advantage of those kinds of nonlinearities. And when one focuses on that, you get some pretty remarkable performance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you think here design and, and modeling plays a role in just to, to understand the performance or expecting the performance? Well, you know, I'm an experimentalist. And mm. so from the point of view of an experimentalist, one has to know, uh, you have to know facts. Okay. When you push on something as, you know, a, a soft beam, mm. what does the beam do? Because trying to work that out purely theoretically may or may not be right, but you don't know that you've got the right answer yeah. until you actually tried it. So yes, theory definitely would play a role in this as the field develops, as we have more and more facts to work with, the ability of theory to take those facts, to develop models for them, and then to extend those models into more complex systems will get to be very important. So I'm a big admirer of theory and material science. Mm -hmm. Having said that, without having a, an experimental basis for the phenomena, yeah. it's pretty hard to make it up before you, you get there. Exactly. So what we're doing is providing the experimental basis. Yeah. So you have really the rich experience and and that's why I would like to ask you, what are the most misconceptions about soft robotics and something really concern you? I don't know what misconceptions are. There's a, a basic misconception about robotics. Mm -hmm. Robotics are going to take jobs away from people. And robotics may take jobs away from people, but we already have, in my counting, two absolutely splendid examples of robots doing something worthwhile, which have been around now for 50 years, and that is the mm. invention and introduction of the washing machine yeah. and the dishwasher. And both of these are robots, which are simple machines, they're made of hard materials, but they took from largely women. Mm boring tasks, which is washing dishes and washing clothes, and converted those to something that the machine did and allowed the people to go and do more interesting things like being teachers and CEOs and whatever people do when they get to grow up. And so what I think you want the entire field of robotics to do is to blur that distinction and push it further into taking over tasks that are difficult dangerous, expensive, boring, unpleasant in some way, and having those done by machines, and then release people to go and do more interesting and more complicated and more profitable jobs. Mm. And this continue, and there will certainly be occasions in which people and robots work together. So that's another part of the equation. But that basic issue of trying to let machines expand the, the role of machines so they take over jobs that people don't want is maybe the better way of thinking about this robotic revolution. Mm -hmm. So this is a very interesting question because I think later on we will discuss that about robotics company and how we can make sure because the system is based on capitalism and how we can make sure while we have this advanced robotics we will not make social inequality. And I think something really worrying for people outside the, the business of robotics or digital uh, uh, workplace. So that's very um, a worrying point. Well, ask the question of whether 
let's say, dishwashers mm -hmm. created jobs or destroyed jobs overall? I don't know the answer to the question. Mm -hmm. But I know that the people who did not become dishwashers have other sorts of jobs, and I can't believe that they aren't at least as interesting and are probably more interesting. Yeah, yeah. So getting back to the intelligent part, before going to um, asking about how soft robotics so far are intelligent, from your perspective, how you would define intelligence or robotics? How you would see it? That's a hard question. Mm -hmm. Because it gets to the question of what is intelligence? Yeah. And intelligence, I don't know what, it, I actually don't know what intelligence is. I mean, it's mm. less pornography and learned hand, I guess, was the one who came up with this definition. She said, I know it when I see it. Yeah. So I know intelligence when I see it. And it's the ability, in a sense, to, in this context at least, respond to un, unprogrammed uh, activities in a way that is constructive, that leads to what you want. Mm -hmm. And so, do soft robots do that? And the answer is, in some cases, yes. So, the you know most of the applications of soft robotics right now are in food handling, and soft robots can handle soft foods efficiently and without damage in a way that it's much more difficult with hard robots. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to do with soft things, and that's because the. You know, the gripper is soft, the thing that's being gripped is soft, and their their compliance of the two fit together. I think it comes as no surprise to any mechanical engineer to think that you're going to get better results if you have compliance matched systems in at least many circumstances, perhaps not all. So, you know, the, the issue with soft robots mm -hmm. is to find where compliance makes any difference. Mm -hmm. You know, my supposition is going to be not only in food and in agriculture, but also in areas like handling people. Because a lot of what goes on in, in a typical hospital involves tasks that are repetitive, in some cases boring, in some cases dangerous, in some cases impossible, that involve manipulating these soft objects called people. Mm -hmm. And with soft robots in principle, there's the opportunity to pick certain of those tasks, not all of them, but certain of those tasks, and replace the people with machines, which will do the job perhaps better, more more with more repetitions and less objection to repetitions than people do, but do it as skillfully as people can. So we'll see how that works out. Mm -hmm. But right now, the one you know the real the real applications of soft robots. Or in handling fragile things, whatever the fragile things may be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here's a question: As you highlighted that um, the intelligence is very hard, and when we see it as a nature, we can see something like starfish doesn't have a brain, doesn't have a brain, and some animals have brain, and that's something now what we call it like embodied intelligence. How make sure we have the right body, a, a mind as well, brain. I, I mean, and the environment. And other side, we have the morphological computation where we don't have uh, some animal, some some creature like starfish doesn't have a brain. So how how do you see this kind of two uh, categories? Oh, that's is a brain important in soft robotics? And how do you see too far uh, the developed soft robotics are really intelligent? Do you see in the body morphology or just having uh, like um, microfluid circuits? How you would see it 
so far? Well, you have to look at us. Is the brain important? Mm. And uh, with many animals, reflexes are more important than brains. That is to say, with primitive animals, many of the emotions that a touch or a smell or a mm. light flat evoke uh, come with a localized circuit because that's much faster than going all the way to the brain and coming back. And the kinds of things that one sees with soft robotics probably initially will have the same kind of characteristic. We've recently done some work in which we made um, basically the pneumatic equivalent of uh, soft soft uh, operational amplifiers. Mm. And these work very nicely. And they're actually, I think, going to turn out to be pretty useful in making peristaltic devices and devices that are operators for ring, ring oscillators and things of that sort, which can be built into a number of different systems. Mm -hmm. But the point of interest and example in those is that the question is, you could imagine building a computer which used fluidic logic. And in the past, people have built computers that used fluidic logic. But is that a worthwhile thing to do? And we don't know the answer to that right now because no one has built such computers. Hence, we don't know they, what they can do. Mm. Hence, we don't know what problems they can solve. So my, my current standard is the field is still in an exploratory stage. A sort of an interesting issue is what is the actuation going to be? Because mm. anything that a soft system does is going to involve mechanical work in some fashion. And so are you better off doing this with compressed air or compressed liquid hydraulically? You're better off using an electrical actuator as with a, a controlled di dielectrical elastomer or something of that sort. And there are people who feel very strongly that pneumatics is the best way. There are people who feel very strongly that electrical is the best way of doing it. I don't have a very strong feeling. And mm. it may be that different circumstances and different tasks require different speeds of actuation, different degrees of force, different degrees of safety, mm -hmm. different infrastructure, supporting infrastructure, and we'll see. If you go to a um, automobile, let's say automobile manufacturing plant, you'll find both electrical and hydraulic um, actuators there. And so there are circumstances where you want one, there are circumstances in which you want the other. But the field is still too no new mm. to make any good um, generalizations about what's the best way of doing task X. We just yeah. don't know until we yeah. for a while. So when do you expect this something we can like mature field? When do you expect that? How many years we can take it so that we can make sure and making swimming generalizations that this is the right approach or this is do you expect well, I think one can one can do some of it now. I mean in the sense that if you think about for example surgery mm -hmm. I really don't want 10,000 volts wired into my stomach. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy with the way it is. And so from that point of view, having something that is intrinsically designed, which pneumatic systems are, that they don't have that much energy, just enough energy to do the job that you want to do, I think is a, you know, is a good, sensible thing to do. Mm -hmm. So looking at the applications will probably give you some idea of what the, what the opportunities are for different forms of actuation. 
one of the characteristics of a new field is that we don't have demonstrations of every possibility, hence we don't know what works well and what doesn't work well. And one of the charms of this field at the moment is that lots of people can work on lots of approaches and in the course of time we're going to have empirical answers to the sorts of questions that you're asking. Mm. That is, what do we know works best and what do we know doesn't compete and yeah. where do we go from here? And it'll take a while to work that out and how rapidly will depend probably upon the nature of the the uh, applications and the nature of the enthusiasm for real developers in the capitalist system to work with soft robotic systems mm -hmm. and how that goes. So how we can make sure that we are going in, in the right direction since we have, there is now have trade-off between the power for instance and a real application. Do you see that researchers take this in consideration in academia in general, we work in realistically to meet the project to transfer from technology to a product level. Do you think this is something taking seriously or I know there's a lot of research, but there's like problems that we don't from the lab is different from reality and the assumption we do in the lab different from the reality. Yes, the lab is very different from reality. And I think you would make the argument that when it comes to translation, that is movement from the lab to reality, that should be led by people who have applications. Mm. We tend not to do that right now. We tend to work on systems that have the characteristic that the you do in the university often what's considered interesting and doable. And then you, after you've done that, you try to ask what the application is. Mm. In industry, it's more the other way around. What is the application and then what are the characteristics that one has to have in order to enable that application? Yeah. And both, both are probably good and both have been key parts in trying to make the uh, electronic application work. But if you look at the number of things right now, the internet and social engineering and things of that sort, they're mostly, they're mostly user driven. And the fact that one has these marvelous devices called computers, whether they're desktop or, or personal computers doesn't really make any difference, is because people wanted that kind of device. Now, what kind of device in terms of soft systems do people really want and value? And that we don't know the answer to right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I ask you what is the current challenges that you are interested in solving, or something you, after this experience, is still challenging, you see, it's still challenging to be solved yet? Hard question. Um, I think that if we had our druthers, we would put a much greater effort in systems that were intended for um, prosthetics, for things of that sort, mm -hmm. aids for nurses, um, systems that have the characteristic that they look at the medical system and the human framework and try to find ways of, of providing machine help for people who presently do most of the work in trying to keep frail human systems working. Mm -hmm. And so we'll have to see how that goes. One of the interesting characteristics is that if you look at the agencies that support research in universities, at least in the United States, 
the National Institutes of Health is concerned with um, disease. I mean, it's concerned with cancer, with arteriosclerosis, or cardiovascular disease, with Parkinson's, with mm. uh, you know all those things. Those are all very, very good things to be concerned with. But arthritis is also a very good thing to be concerned with. A lost limb is a very good thing to be concerned with. Losing control of a grip because you've had a stroke, that's a good thing to be concerned with. I mean, all of these things have different values when you place them in a social context. And I don't know how you judge other than by seeing what's doable. And often the technology that moves most rapidly is the technology which is the easiest to do. And what universities do well is they dream up options. So they find what's easy, what's difficult, and then the people who are trying to fix real problems look at those range of options and choose among them to see what's going to work well and going to work badly for some particular application. So at the moment, the field is still new enough that it has a range of possible things to work mm. with. And that's, of course, very exciting because you don't know what's going to happen that can really open a new door. But it's a little disgruntling because you don't know what's going to happen when you open a new door. There may be that behind the door there isn't anything. Mm-hmm. And so you have to try and see. That's yeah. the characteristic of discovery research. Yeah, yeah. So do you think for the coming years, do you think the community of soft robotics should be more focused on, as you highlighted earlier, about replacing the passive material with a smart material and or just using, still using control techniques? How do you think the, the past, because you have this all these experiences, so do you think we have to focus on which path now? Um, no, I don't. My guess is that the focus should be as much on can you find legitimate applications? Because mm. the rule of thumb that many people who do venture capital use and mm. I happen to use is that to make a, a, a new technology, to convert it from a first discovery in a university or industrial research laboratory into a real product takes about 10 years and takes about a hundred million dollars. And those are actually pretty impressive numbers when you think about them in different ways. And we won't go through the different ways of thinking about them here and I'm probably not the right person to do it anyway. But what that says is that what you want to do is to go in the direction in which you're actually demonstrating that the technology that you have, the new technology, is useful for something. It actually solves a problem that somebody would like to have solved. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my supposition is that for this area at this time, what it needs to do as much as anything else is to solve, show that it can solve certain classes of problems really uniquely well. And then we'll be up and running because one will have a general direction of what direction to go in, a general idea of what direction to go in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I would like to ask you also about then soft robotics interdisciplinary field. And you are by nature that you, you're a chemist and you have the experience of robotics. So, but realistically speaking, just a few can understand different language for material science and control and electric engineering. And realistically, there's a challenge because some people really don't understand 
the complexity in like material science and that's why this is a conflict come here. I don't know how, how do you think this challenging can be solved or do you think there is no challenges to speak different languages from this experience you no, have? There, there are real challenges, not challenges, you just have to know different things. Mm. But you say that your background was something to do with electrical engineering and you can see immediately that some of the ideas that you use in electrical engineering are directly relevant to hard robotics or soft robotics or robotics in general yeah. and some of the kinds of information that you have is not relevant at all yeah. so you will have to learn some different things i think that that robotics is always going to be more um more dependent upon thermodynamics than it is on many of the ideas in statistical physics simply because it's you know, it tends or it has tended to do things that have the characteristics that they're relatively energy. Um, how do I put this? They, they require a lot of energy to do lifting heavy weights and things of that sort, regardless of whether you do it with people or robots or donkeys. It just requires a certain amount of work to do it. So, you know, do how many people in chemistry really understand thermodynamics? How many people mm. in physics really understand thermodynamics? It depends upon whether they've had a chance to work on it and think on it for a little mm. bit. And so what one is going to have to do is to sort of think about these new areas like electronics um, of the sort that you're interested in, quantum electronics, if that turns out to be a real characteristic, robotics, soft robotics, and ask what are the ways of thinking that we should try to help students to understand. Mm. And I don't know any any approach other than that one. And they're going to figure out what they need to know as time goes on. And it may turn out to be obvious or it may not turn out to be obvious. But they're going to know and we're not going to know before them, I think, because they're going to run against these problems. Yeah. yeah. So if I ask you what is the most interesting project you have ever had with your students, something and, and, and a few years ago, and something also just in in the past you had something really you deeply cherish a project and so forth yeah that that's an interesting another interesting and complicated question mm. in a in a sense the most useful has been grabbers mm. you know things to pick up and put down the reason being that you could put these very easily on the end of hard mechanical grippers hard mechanical arms mm. to make working systems that have proved to be practically useful. But from an intellectual point of view, probably the most interesting thing is work that we've done that was started by a guy named Philip Rothman, who was a graduate student in the group, who's now in Colorado working with um, yeah. Chris Stevens. And what he did was to make a system of valves which are bistable, so they they introduce the idea of metastability in materials. And they have the characteristic that they perform a very interesting function. You can use them as the functional equivalent of the functional pneumatic equivalent of collections of transistors. And the the interest in this is that it raises the question of what does information mean in a material sense and it raises a separate question which is does anyone care mm. now we have the system of valves and we have recently published a paper which 
shows that you can do any Boolean operation with these systems and valves and do it quite handsomely. But we have to do a bunch of other things to get these valves down to the point where they become inexpensive and something that one can imagine building a system on. But then even then, it still remains open to question of whether anyone cares that we've made them or not. And this is the characteristic of discovery research, again, that you do something because it can be done, because it's interesting, because it fits in with your idea of what, what is broadly important. But you don't know until you've tried it for a while whether it really leads somewhere or whether it's a dead end, which is and maybe an interesting dead end, but still a dead end. So there are both kinds of questions. Discovery research has the characteristic that it's a little bit inefficient at times, but that's probably intrinsic to the process of discovery. Yeah. So if I ask you, what do you think the most promising project have been done in soft robotics by other research group? Something you say, oh, it was really really interesting and meaningful as well in other groups? Well, that depends on what you mean by important. I mean, I think these, these systems that are electrically, electrically actuated, mm -hmm. in the sense that uh, Zhigong Zhuo did the first kinds of things connected to this, dielectrical astomers, are really, really interesting because they're fast. Mm. And fast is generally a good idea. And they can do things that other people can't do. So that you can make, for example, a loudspeaker that's also transparent. Yeah. And that's worthwhile making, just to see if it works. And it turns out it works and works actually pretty well. But the question is, does anyone care? And that's going to depend upon finding applications for these things. And the question of whether one is better off to come up with a new capability and then find an application, or you're better off to find an unmet need and then find a capability that satisfies that, is something which is an inevitable part of coming up with something new in material science. Because at the beginning, you know, nobody really knew what composites were going to be good for, and now basically everything is made of composites. And at the beginning, Nobody knew the Kuchukrowski growth of silicon was going to be important, and now it turns out to be critically important. And nobody knew mm. how important the transistor was going to be until one made transistors. And if you, there's a book called um, The Idea Factory, mm. which is a story of Bell Labs in the period when it was yeah. inventing all kinds of stuff and it had lots of smart people. And the picture that one has at Bell Labs at that time is one in which you, there were lots of smart people, absolutely, mm -hmm. working in a relatively financially unconstrained environment, which is largely true, um, doing basic research and coming up with good stuff, which according to the guy who was running Bell Labs at that time, Bill Baker, is not true. Mm -hmm. And said that everyone who worked at Bell Labs, they signed up to work on at Bell Labs because they knew that their job was a practical job. They were going to be making a better telephone system and a more profitable telephone system. So I think that question of where the money comes from yeah. and goes into making things has a very direct interplay with the kind of question that you raised, because where there is where there's smart people working, 
they have to be paid. And when they're paid and they're smart people and they're working, good things will happen because there's so much of science that remains to be explored. Mm-hmm. Science and technology, I should really put them as somewhat different categories, but you know, science is in principle discovery of why things do what they do and then technology is what you do with things once you've found out what they do. And so they're somewhat different kinds of objectives. And so there's no simple answer to the question. Yeah. It depends upon the field, how rapidly it moves, what applications you can find for it. And if it's you know, a field that's restricted to relatively simple things, then it'll move much less rapidly than something which has the characteristic that you can do all sorts of functions with it. And that's not going to happen unless one takes these industrial components mm-hmm. that are made and are readily available for working with and tries them in different applications. And that's a little bit where the field is right now. It's beginning to introduce real industrial components that are, you know, purchased in pretty straightforward ways and you can try them in different projects and see how they work. And I hope it goes rapidly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's very also interesting point. And that leads me to another question. Do you think there's a hype in thumb research and soft robotics? For example, as you main um, that we all know that some research is not reproducible that's something we really stuck sometimes we can't reproduce the same experiment with the same data we get and that's really worrying that we don't have a solid ground to to understand how this result have been obtained so do you think there's a hype because in in if we speak in academia at least do you think there is a hype or not I don't know about hype. I mean, I think of soft robotics or robotics in general as a field that has the characteristic in which it, in a sense, speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. Either it works or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work in a practical application, then it doesn't work Mm -hmm. the way there is. I am not myself very aware of examples of things that have been reported and which have the characteristic that they don't work. Mm-hmm. I mean, stuff I think more or less works. A lot of science does have a, at some times, a, an element of hyperbole, which is people trying to emphasize the potential for what they do in mm-hmm. terms of importance. And that's terrific. And applications blur that out because applications have the characteristic that either they work or they don't work. So right now we're in the stage of early applications and we'll see how rapidly the the, the breadth of those applications expands. And mm-hmm. if it expands rapidly, then the field will become important. And if it expands slowly, then it will be something which is eventually perfected for mm-hmm. small small applications and we'll go from there. My My current sense is that there are enough things that you can see where this might work, that if you take even a small fraction of them and you look at agriculture, food, human handling, animal handling, that whole collection of stuff, there's going to be lots of things to do. So I'm at the moment very optimistic, Mm -hmm. but a lot of that is going to be the development of appropriate technology and how rapidly that proceeds depends upon how rapidly the initial Mm -hmm. foci develop 
in terms of their applications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you highlight a very, I think, I think the really important point uh, about say some or I think a fraction of research emphasize the potential for this uh, research, and that's terrific. And that's why maybe I would like to ask you about maybe because of the funding and you have to show up the potential for your application. And we see that the negative versus sometimes is, is not favored in the system. And that's kind of a struggle um, in research. I don't know if you agree on this point or not about this kind of the policy to get funded research and promising that there is a potential behind the work. Yes, a wonderful question, because there's both a policy question, or there are a range of policy questions, how much of research actually goes on in university and how much goes on in industry, and the, it's obviously very different in discovery and in application, and who pays for it, and should be the payment be returned in terms of goods, jobs, and services, potential, new jobs, how should it be done? These are all, all great questions. I don't, I'm not smart enough to know the answer to it. And I don't think at the beginning of a new area, one can fairly answer that question because you simply don't know how things are going to develop. What I do know is that we need to have the capability in every society for coming up with new things and we need to have the ability to deal with trends in the society that are inevitable. Mm. And one of the interesting trends that you see right now is that in societies as a general, the societies are growing older. Mm. And older means that there are going to be more people around yeah. who are not an active part of the workforce, but are consuming a lot of healthcare costs and who are perfectly good people. They just happen to be old. So how does one deal with that? And this is a, you know, it's a problem in China. Mm -hmm. And China's having lots and lots of people. And China has lots and lots of people, but it also has lots and lots of old people. And so in China and Japan and the United States and Europe, we have to find out how we're going to take good care of these older people yeah. in a, a, a cost-effective way, um, which, you know, involves, will probably involve finding technology because it hasn't been the case in the past. So we're going to have to find that new, those new technologies, that new technology. And my guess is robotics will be a part of that. But almost anywhere that you go, you find that people are involved in the mix of people to what the people are, are expected to produce mm -hmm. is going to go up as the number of young people in the society goes down. And this is going to be a remarkably interesting transition to watch. Yeah. And, you know, the real question that you, I think, are pointing toward is the question of will machines ultimately replace um, people mm -hmm. in terms of doing jobs? And probably not, because at every given point, what people do, it turns out to be amazingly creative when you have people who don't have all the you know the advanced tools and the advanced simulations and don't use computers very well they nonetheless can come up with fantastically interesting technological ways of solving important problems mm -hmm. so we'll just have to see what the range of empirical solutions and physics or science-based um, approaches 
leads to. And at the moment, you can't say because, at least in the case of soft robotics, we're at the beginning of discovery, not at the end. Yeah, yeah. So if I ask you, what do you think the most challenging problems that could face soft robotics in the long run? To me, the most challenging problem, <coughs> excuse me, Sorry, the most yeah. challenging problem is the problem of how you integrate, truly integrate people and machines. Mm. And by integrating, I mean both in the terms of fixing, so that would be the medical uses of soft robotics, and in terms of actuation, which means the hard parts. There's also a very interesting question of does artificial intelligence and things of that sort, mm. is there a particular role for that kind of computation when one is working with nonlinear soft systems? Yeah. I don't know how to do that theoretically otherwise. I don't, in fact, know that that's going to work, but it's at least a plausible thing to try and people like uh, Barry Tremor and others who've done some experiments with soft systems and artificial intelligence have had some, you know, some interesting and very promising looking results. So I don't know, that may turn out to be a critical element of this. But each new technology brings along with it, drags along with it, mm. a series of other technologies that are looking for applications. And I think one is going to look for those opportunities in this area of soft materials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So coming to the ethics and regulation, and there's something I think this is related to that we have to come to application. So assuming that we have applications, so do you think the field have set ethics and regulation with soft robotics since we have material and some of the material still has been toxic behavior at there? So this is kind of researchers sometimes, um, I don't know if all researchers fully consider the ethics and regulation since we don't have like a pamphlet or just something we can follow up to make sure we don't preach the ethics. Yeah, I'm, I'm somebody who's very interested in the ethics of science and technology. Mm. And my guess is the problems are going to lie elsewhere. Mm. Uh, if you look at the materials that are used for soft robotics right now, the polymers, PDMS, is basically pretty innocuous stuff. And polymers that are in the vapor phase or, mm. you know, they're, they're intrinsically toxic for one or another exactly. reason. Mm. Uh, tend to be elsewhere. So I think that the potential for toxic behaviors in, in soft robotic systems is probably less than in some other new technologies, although one would, I would at least, not have guessed that the problem of microplastics was as serious an environmental problem as it may turn out to be, or may already, already be. Mm. But so I think your question is a legitimate one, and it's one which everybody who's interested in a new technology should work with. But there's no way that you can go from a transistor to face recognition and potential abuses of face recognition. So the potential for having society become static as opposed to trying to fix through regulation or through other means the problems that new, techno new technologies and new areas of science bring along is, you know, we have to work this out. Uh, the classic example in a sense is quantum mechanics, where 
the characteristics of quantum mechanics is that systems that operate following the rules of quantum mechanics are intrinsically pretty difficult for experts to understand. Mm -hmm. So they're pretty difficult for people who are not experts to understand as well. And yet they are an important part of the world we live in and an increasingly important part as we go along, ranging from, you know, quantum computation to nuclear weapons. Yeah. And yet society manages to make its way. And I think it will make its way with robotics. I think it'll make its way with artificial intelligence. These are things we have to ask the questions that you're asking and in principle try to get ahead of the problems, but you know, live with the expectation that we're not going to be able to head off every problem as we start with it. And there will be others that we have to notice as we go along. And that's not an answer, but it's sort of the way that things went. Nobody would have guessed that nitrates both made possible dynamite and also uh, fertilizer at the same time. So this question of whether dynamite has killed more people than fertilizer has provided the food to feed to prevent from starving remains with us as an interesting question to think about. And this will come along, this kind of question will come along with most new areas of new technology. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're asking the right questions, but don't prejudge the answer. For a sufficiently new technology, it may not be possible to answer that question originally. That's interesting. Very interesting. So with that being said, I would like to ask you how we can make sure robotics in general is going to be beneficial to humanity as a whole. Can we make that, that assurance? I mean, this is why I used the word a while ago, inevitabilities. There are some things that we know. We know that the population is going to get older. Mm. And why do we know that? And the answer is that societies, all societies basically um, bend toward putting their efforts toward keeping people living longer. Mm -hmm. It's considered an intrinsic good. Yeah. And so all of that I think is fine. But having said that, um, you, you have to think a little bit about the question of if you have a new thing, can you anticipate what it's going to be used for? And the answer is you can't. You can anticipate some things because that's why you're developing it. But how it's actually going to be used in principle, could you ever have started from the transistor and guessed the social, you know, the internet, um, social networking, social tools? I don't think you could have. And the reason for that is that the, the applications were developed by the users, not by the technologists. So I think that products that are consumer products, you know, when you find consumer products appearing, you will have a sense that there's the potential for wide scale change, even if you don't recognize it. So does one recognize now the influence of the washing machine and the dishwasher? No, mm -hmm. you don't. They're just tools. No more interesting than a saw and a hammer but they've actually made a profound difference in society. And so will we recognize, can we recognize at this point what soft robotics might lead to if you can truly build systems that are part mechanical, mechanical engineering, part yeah. electronic, part soft robotic, and part um, whatever you would call the, the hybrid of a human interaction and a machine interaction. I don't think you can. Mm -hmm. 
in you know in 50 years we'll know but right now we don't and so you know thinking that change is inevitable we will go ahead and work with it and see what happens Mm -hmm. this is the kind of thing that will everyone is going to go along with because if we don't do it we being the united states western europe then there's lots of the rest of the world which will do new and interesting things that they might consider important and yeah. then information may come back to us we'll see how it goes it is a very hard and tricky point yeah it's a hard and tricky point but a very very interesting one yeah. so you're to raise it yeah so i really like what you said in one of your talks which is you say that there is no conflict of interest by working at the lab and having a company. Right. This is something I really like so much. Do you think this really implemented or installed in many research lab that you can, if we speak about younger generation, you can do your studies and and aside in parallel you have um, a startup or a company. Do you think this kind of um, culture that you really I think that's why Soft Robotics Inc. comes from you you uh, was called Fuse the CEO of the company so do you think this all research lab really consider this aspect or welcoming I that I can't speak for all research laboratories mm. but the argument that I would make is that my neighbors who are doctors and postmen and whatever they may be mm-hmm. pay taxes and they pay taxes on the grounds that in the long run they trust the government to use some tiny fraction of that money that they get from taxes for the public good. Mm-hmm. It can be highways, it can be better defense, it can be better education, it can be better whatever, better technology. For yeah. example. And so uh, there's a little bit to follow the money. People are giving us money to do research on faith we should pay back ethically this uh, gesture of faith by trying to solve some problems for society. There are going to be some cases in which we do just the intellectual demonstration. But in many cases, it's going to be really important to try to solve problems that society knows it has. Mm. You know, pick just one. It's not one that I think is relevant to this discussion. But we know that Alzheimer's disease, neurodegenerative diseases, are going to, are and will continue to be increasing problems in society. So how do you deal with these problems? Yeah. The answer is we don't entirely know. So people rely on science to answer that question or to at least contribute to the answer to that question. And the same thing is true when you think of the work that machines do and people do, and that's going to be robotics. So robotics are inevitable. New medicine is inevitable. New methods of education are inevitable. All of these things are going to happen. We're not necessarily going to recognize what they are while they're happening. So is the social network, is Facebook a system for education or is Facebook um, something else altogether? I don't know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Probably don't either. But I think if you live in, let's say, Syria or Iran, the answer is likely to be quite different than if you live in the UK or France or the United States. And we'll just have to see how it works out. Mm-hmm. You can't anticipate too much of the way the world changes. Yeah. I can't anyway. Yeah. But I would like to ask you because this is a statement about the conflict of interest because some like EU projects sometimes 
the developing new smart materials and when companies coming and really eager to implement or cooperate they refuse to diffuse any like data because there is something here they sort like the publication or patent and, and they planning to have it and other sides of the company assuming the project is like three years or time and the company wanted to have a product with time frame two years and that's like a conflict between the funding you get from uh, for the project and the company if you would like just um, to, to launch a product I don't know how you see this conflict. I don't know if this, like, in US is different than Europe, West Europe. Um, this statement can be generalized. Yeah, well, I don't know the answer to that either. I mm. mean, if you talk to any researcher, they will say, give me more money and I will do more research. Mm. Terrific. Whether that's true or not is neither here nor there. But more important is the fact that if they do more research, will it be? better research or will it just be more research and that's an interesting question mm -hmm. and so the you know the the basic conflicts between wanting to do more stuff more of what you do which is what people who love research like to do uh, relative to writing on research unsuccessful research proposals is just part of the annoyance of getting on in the world as far as I can see and mm -hmm. I would much prefer it if people understood that that science and technology can contribute to changing the world mm -hmm. but other things also importantly contribute like public policy and things of that sort in the united states we now have the you know the the publicly held view that environmental issues are not particularly important well mm -hmm. maybe they are maybe they are not we don't really know but I'm willing to, I personally am willing to bet, as somebody who is a scientist but also a citizen, that they are important. Having said that, does it make any difference? And the answer is no. I have one vote, as everyone has. Mm -hmm. So this question of how do, you, how do you predict the result of a large-scale change in science and society and sociology and whatever it might be, mm -hmm. you don't know how to do that. And robotics is one of those inevitabilities. We know that it will become more important because the capability in mechanical engineering or what mechanical engineers know, making machines, controlling machines, um, all the kinds of things that go into making new kinds of machinery, it's all there. So it's a question of using it. So it will happen. Mm -hmm. Whether it's going to dramatically change society or not, I can't judge. Mm -hmm. My guess is yes. But I don't know that for sure, nor do you. So, you know, we have the interesting case in which we know a large scale change is going to happen, but we don't know for sure whether it's going to make a big difference or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you say that um, Romba is a stupid robot. Do you think she, uh, this robot, I don't know he or she yet, but, but do you think um, is it still stupid or intelligent? Because when we see there in reality, we don't have so much robotics company around us. And that's why when I ask you, what do you think, what make the robotics company successful? If we speak about software robotics company successful? Well, I, you know, you can ask about several parts of that. Roomba, uh, to me, is a very important device because it's a robot 
which is actually a very sophisticated piece of technology, mm -hmm. which deals with a human problem, which is cleaning floors mm -hmm. and things of that sort. And so every time you find something that's, you know, that's there that has to be done for a wide variety of reasons, but maybe is pretty boring or repetitive or whatever you can ask if that isn't better done by machine. Mm -hmm. so Roomba is important to me, not because of its level of technological sophistication, but because it is an example of a technologically pretty sophisticated object, which has been introduced into the consumer sector successfully. You see the same kind of thing with quad rotors, yeah. drones and things of that sort. These are, one could have built the same kinds of systems a long time ago, but it's only now that they're catching on because people recognize how versatile they are and all the things that one can do with them. Mm -hmm. And all the things you can do with them are not necessarily not necessarily um, socially acceptable at the moment, but we'll figure that out one way or another. And so that basic issue of looking at new technology and asking, can you predict how it came out? I mean, I remind you of the fact that supposedly the initial uses of mainframe computers from IBM were for processing payrolls and doing accounts receivable. And those are both really pretty boring tasks. And once you could do them by computer, then they began the, the start of the process that led to computers as we see them now. Combine that with military uses, and you can make an argument that both are socially undesirable. I didn't say that I agreed with that point of view, but it, it is a point of view. Um, you know, it's very difficult to tell how these things work out. And what one finds with robots is that robots have the potential to replace human beings in certain kinds of tasks. And what kinds of tasks will depend upon what the capabilities are that are provided and soft robots are providing a kind of capability that is new. And so Will this open a new door to robotics to go in a new direction or not? And the answer is, it's begun to open a door, but we don't really know for sure what's behind the door yet. And we'll find out over the course of the next mm -hmm. 10 years so. Yeah. So I really also appreciate your point about this coming point in one of your talks. Do you think universities and research group and funding agency follow that pastor quadrant where knowledge and solution are integrated? In some cases, maybe more than others. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the biomedical, the biomedical is often driven by applications. Mm -hmm. You have the new vaccine. You don't really care how the vaccine works. You, I mean, you may in a second order for later vaccines care, but for the moment you don't care. So that's a case where you do a lot of empirical work and the empirical work opens new ways of thinking about the problem because you see what works and what doesn't work. And in other areas, you know, it's much more complicated. Mm -hmm. Can we build, to take an example, the, the um, 737 MAX, um, you would think that the problem of having a computer system that would can help to control that aircraft in difficult circumstances would be one that we've already solved because heavens knows there are enough sensors and enough computing capability 
And the answer is we haven't. Now, why haven't we? And I don't know the answer to that. I've not been involved with the effort one way or another. But trying to make those distinctions between what technology can do and what technology has done mm-hmm. and ask which one is ahead of which, we haven't generally bothered to do that. That's what what people who are smart in a different way than scientists and technologists do. And so maybe you can tell me why we are where we are in control systems for aircraft. Yeah. Uh, and I can't because it's not what I do for a living. Yeah. So if I ask you where the innovation comes from mostly when we work in research, do you think where's point where's innovation comes? And how we can make sure there's innovation also in our research? What is innovation? Innovation is new ideas. Mm-hmm. So you can, as somebody pointed out, you can have innovation in technology, you can have innovation in science, you can have innovation in business practices, you mm-hmm. can have innovation in structure, you can have innovation of all sorts. So we need to be careful not to say that innovation comes in the form of a specific thing. To, you know, to take an example, Amazon mm-hmm. is a very innovative company. Yeah. And it innovates in business practices. I mean, it gets you your whatever it was that you ordered, you order easily and it's delivered to you quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's nothing new there, it's just fast and it works really well. And it's completely changing the structure of the interface between manufacturers and consumers. But that basic idea that you have a few, a few classical companies which used to dominate their fields. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't anymore. I mean, how many chemical companies do you find? I'm a chemist. So how many chemical companies do you find that were the equivalent of the DuPont of old? And the answer is you don't find very many now. And so will companies like BASF and others of that sort, will they continue to exist in the future? Um, time will tell. It depends upon their ability to come up with new problems that they can solve, which people want to have solved and will pay sufficiently for that they will pay you to if you have a solution. So that question of innovation to me is a much more complicated question than asking what gets done in the university, it's what gets done everywhere. Yeah. The, you know, the computer revolution has been driven in large part by people other than university researchers. It's been driven by customers mm-hmm. and you know others have been driven by people who are intermediate manufacturers and in other cases it's been driven by people who just come up with ideas or demonstrations of principle or how architectures work in biology or whatever one's thinking about i don't think you can draw very good generalizations about that the one thing that i would say yeah. is that the innovation of any sort requires somebody who's some person who's really smart. I don't at the moment see innovation happening Mm. on a scale as driven by machines. Now I know that Go and chess are now played by machines very well, but there are special circumstances. And exactly what one is going to make of AI and related areas remains very much to be seen. And I think it's an extremely exciting area to look at because if you look at hard machines, soft machines and artificial intelligence, then you have an opportunity to create 
a new set of entities that can do things that existing entities can't, that is, we can't. And so that's going to be exciting to watch. Yeah. So if I ask you, how do lay people think about soft robotics? When you speak with a family or grandchild, what's your perception about soft robotics? Are they excited or they don't care about it? Well, the most common response we've gotten to many of the things that we have are, if they crawl or walk or whatever it might be, people will look at a movie of them and say, hmm. that's creepy. Now, oh. I don't know whether that's the proper response, mm. because, you know, creepy is a, a word which means it looks sort of like what I'm familiar with, but it's actually not that, it's something else, so if it's something else, it's creepy. Yeah. I, you know, that that's a kind of interesting question. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think people have thought through the the implications of the robotic world or a world in which robots are an important part of things very carefully. And that's not a surprise in any way because people haven't thought through a world in which electronics are important other than relatively, you know, I won't say casually, but it isn't a subject that everyone thinks about, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that, that basic question of, do you want to live in a world in which humans and machines are um, equally important, or maybe machines get to be more important, or in the modern world, are machine machines maybe more important? Or what do you do about the issue of getting machines and humans together to make hybrids, which can do things that neither hybrids nor machines can do alone? All of those are quite interesting questions. Yeah. And many of them have been addressed by people who do things like writing science fiction who have tended to be um, what I think of as admirable visionaries in the sense that they're not constrained by what can be done now, but they make uh, sensible extrapolations to the future mm -hmm. and ask what can be done then and what would be the consequence of the society. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are various pictures of a robot, um, robot not dominated, but robot important society later which are quite different than the ones that we have now. Mm -hmm. So sort of have to see how that works out. I mean, if the world didn't change, it wouldn't be interesting. Mm -hmm. but, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the one problem is that if you're a citizen and the world is changing around you for reasons that you don't fully understand, mm -hmm. make smart decisions about that world, and that's a somewhat different question. Yeah. So I'm interested to ask you, do you think that humans have to respect machine or robots? For example, some researchers developed a uh, um, uh, robot can feel pain. Um, and that's something like, I don't know if you think this is something we have to uh, regulate, that we have to respect robots, or it's just a hoax? Good question. I don't think the answer is clear. I'm not too concerned with feeling pain because I don't think that feeling pain, feeling that you are you have a dysfunctional system in some way or something is partially broken, is very important until you develop self-awareness. And I'm not aware of anything that looks like a self-aware mechanical or electronic or robotic system. But there's no reason why it shouldn't occur at mm -hmm. some point. And at that point, the question of should we retreat 
mechanical entities, non-biological entities with the same ethical standards that we treat um, biological systems and do we even treat biological systems with respect uh, get to be but we can have a prolonged discussion of that subject when we if we decide to get to it but mm -hmm. the I think you can make an argument that we don't treat existing biological systems with yeah. enormous amount of respect mm -hmm. so maybe we won't treat existing um, mechanical systems with a great deal of respect when we get there but mm -hmm. we're not there so we don't have to worry about it yet yeah I don't know if you would like to comment about uh, the Xenobot first living robot that have been uh, highlighted in the last few weeks uh, have you heard about it right Xenobot I'm not sure that I know what that is okay because it, it's the first living robot from uh, frog cells so maybe uh, some ethical like because we take something from living like frogs and stemistilt but anyway we can skip this part well you can certainly take you can certainly take cells and other things and put them together mm -hmm. with hybrids but I think the hybrids are pretty clunky at the current time yeah mm -hmm. so, so this is not my major concern yeah 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 sure so I would like to ask you do you think that because now there is few companies just like controlling uh, our lives through like Google or Facebook or Twitter and posted these companies just based on capitalism. Do you think capitalism and socialism can be integrated while making sure that advanced robotics is not going to lead to social inequality? Social inequality is an interesting term which you can get substantial disagreements on in any event. But that issue of can can you integrate new technologies in such a fashion that you get around social inequality, if you listen to people like Mr. Pinker, mm -hmm. he will tell you that the world is a better, safer way, place to live in now. We spend less time worrying about where to get food and how to keep warm and we have more time to think about other things that might be enriching. Mm -hmm. And so his argument will be that it's already getting better. And there's no question that rather than having, to me, there's no question that I would prefer to have a steam engine than I would to have an ox train of 10 oxen pulling a cart uh, on trails, on rails or not on rails. So, you know, that question of what is a good society? What are the trade-offs that you make between the inevitable balance between good and bad with a new technology? I don't know. I'm not smart enough to tell. Hmm. Yeah, it's a hard question, indeed. It's a hard question. You and I may probably have different opinions on the subject, and we could both be wrong. Exactly, yeah. And we both thought about these issues to various extents with various levels of creativity yeah i agree so i would like to ask you do you have any robots at your home robots well i have dishwashers and sewing machines and washing dishwashers and mm -hmm. things of this sort but you know something that you would recognize as a real robot even at the robot level the answer is no mm -hmm. But uh, do you think that you want kind of robotics 
you dream of that you want this kind of robot at your home? Do you have this kind of thoughts or not? Well, what I do with my life is mostly either things that I enjoy or things that have the characteristics that I can't imagine a robot doing them. Mm. If I asked my wife what she would like to avoid, she would probably like to avoid occasionally cooking dinner and things of this sort. There's no reason at all why a robot couldn't do that. And in fact, many of our dinners come directly out of a microwave oven, yeah. which is kind of robot. And so that question of are there, are there generic tasks that every family faces that could be done better by machines than by people? Exactly. I don't know the answer to that question. The mm. generic task that every family faces is raising children. And in fact, there is an enormous amount of interest and charm in raising children. And children are all different. And so it's not clear that you can make a robot that responds to those differences. Certainly you can't at this level. Yeah. So we just have to keep trying. I don't, I, don't, I don't see robots taking over the average household quickly. Mm -hmm. yeah. I can see robots making driverless cars. And maybe that'll happen or maybe it won't happen. But there's a real reason for doing that because people spend a lot of time driving and it doesn't really get them anywhere and they're not perfectly safe. So there are at least two motivations, space, saving time and providing greater safety that you can think of an automated system for driving. But the automobiles that we use now are very much like the automobiles that we used when was the automobile and introduced, let's say, 100 years ago. Yeah. So this may not happen enormously quickly. Yeah. So since there's a lot of bright minds come out from George Whiteside's lab, do you think ego is important for the researcher? Do I think what is important? Ego. Ego? Yeah. Oh, I don't know whether ego is important. I mean, ego is a funny word because what ego means depends upon the person. Mm. But are people, are people motivated in part by the sense that they do things well and more rapidly than others? And the answer is yes. So competition definitely, in my view, leads to better product. Whether mm -hmm. it's ego or not, can you be competitive if you don't have an ego? I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. But I think that the you know the underlying idea that 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 groups compete with one another is true without the throughout the history of human endeavor, including making new technology. Why not? Yeah. So, what is the fictional character that inspires you, and why? Try the question again. What is the fictional character that inspires you and why? I'm still not sure. What is the... Fictional character from science fiction? Something you would like to be this character? Oh. I didn't say I would like anything. The, you know, the, the people who were there at the beginning, Heinlein and people like this, had an awful lot right. And it's not so much the question to me so much the question of faster than light drive and things of this sort. Mm. It's the question of how one converts, how do, how do human beings live on Mars? There's a good example of the problem. Maybe they don't. Mm. That's 
being problem too. But that underlying issue that we know about, that every, pick a number, 100,000 years or so, we run into a comet that's big enough to make a big difference in climate change, yeah. is a fact that's worthwhile keeping in mind. And we've never yet really had a big rock that we know of fall into the middle of a smallish body of water like the North Atlantic. And it could be a mess. Yeah. So I would like to skew, do you think that we are living in a simulation? Some many people just say that maybe we're living in a simulation. Do you think we're living in a simulation? I don't see how we can be living in a simulation. I just don't, hey, I, I don't worry about it at all. This is a subject that I give any thought to. Mm. Okay, that's not... Why, why would I die if I were living in a simulation? What would be the point? Yeah, it is a very interesting point because sometimes, I don't know, but sometimes you can recognize, is it reality or simulation? It's just, yes. But do you think we don't live in a simulation in any way? I think we don't live in a simulation and I don't care. You don't care. <laughs> I, well, if I'm a simulation, I think therefore I am. I'm, I'm here, I'm thinking we're having a conversation. Yeah. Do I care if you're a simulation? No. We're having a conversation. Would it be a better conversation if you are now a simulation? Mm -hmm. If you are not a simulation, probably not. Yeah. Do you do a fine job with it? So my guess is that right now there, I don't understand the need for having a simulation. Mm. Okay, that's a very interesting point. Yeah. So I would like to ask you which book inspired you and you would like to recommend it to the millennial or younger kids listening maybe? 1984. Mm. George Orwell. And the reason for that is cautionary. I mean, Orwell was thinking about other things, but he wrote a book which suggests a world which probably we don't want to be part of and it's good to see it in fiction before you see it in in uh, reality mm -hmm. yeah and so if I ask you what is the most important qualities for the researcher what's the important qualities I don't know the answer to your question it depends upon how much I've had to drink um, you know, good researchers are smart, they're stubborn, they're persistent, they tend to fix on a problem and stay with the problem until it's worked out. Some of them are motivated by money, some are not. Mm. So, I mean, researchers are as varied as any group that you can find. And, you know, some of them are very, very complicated people. Some of them are, seem to be purely focused on what they're doing. And I, it's just another one of those questions that strikes me as being yeah. not one that I spend a lot of time worrying about. You beautifully put this, all these points. So yeah, I agree. So we're closing to the end. I would like to ask you, what is the most um, advice, beautiful advice you have given to you, whether in your personal life or professional life and was like a life changing to you and stuck to your mind every day? 
there actually hasn't been one. People tend not to give me advice. Mm. And do they do they tend not to do that for a good reason? And you, you got me. I mean, you could make the case I'm stubborn, and that may be true, but I'm not sure that I know the answer. Certainly, I don't know the answer as well as others would know. So you don't accept advices in reality. You don't accept any advice. Oh, I do accept advice, but I haven't gotten any that I've followed. Yeah. And that doesn't mean it wasn't good advice. It just means whatever it means. Yeah. I'm human. Yeah. Beautiful. So I would like to thank you uh, for your time. And while I trivially rest off robotics, I would like to thank you for your time. It was a great honor to have you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk with you as a machine intelligence or a sentient biological intelligence or whatever you are. So Thank it was you. an interesting. Thanks so much.